0: Against all mankind into his court. And finally, verse 2 ends, indicating from where this summons comes. This is coming from the Lord's holy temple. Of course, there was a physical temple in Jerusalem at that time, the place which God set as the meeting place with mankind. And indeed, that temple was holy because it was set apart. It was the place of exclusive worship of God. This is the place where the original copy of his holy law was kept and the Holy of Holies was located, where atonement for sin was made by the high priest on behalf of the people. However, as we will see in verses 3 and 4, this holy temple also points us to heaven, a place where God dwells forever. Heaven is God's ultimate holy temple, It is his eternal dwelling place because we know that the physical temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. But no human hand can touch or affect God's true holy temple in heaven. Micah then uses stark imagery beginning in verse 3 to describe God's coming out from his dwelling place. Look at verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So that brings us to our first set of questions from the bulletin. And the first question is, what do verses 2 through 4 indicate to us about the nature of God and the second part of the question is, what do the three imperatives in these verses indicate to us is our appropriate response? So what do verses 2 through 4 indicate to us about, about the nature of God? And what do the three imperatives in these verses indicate to us is our appropriate response? Keith <laughs> God demands demands, um, that be done. Okay. All right, so he's a he's a just God? He's a great and mighty God and he he has authority over all the earth as nature is bound down before him Alright, that's Titus And also in in the end of verse 2 it says that the Lord is a witness Mm -hmm. Okay, and what what do you think that means? that he sees what is going on. He's not a God who is so far off that he doesn't know what's going on in his world. Anyone else? What do these verses tell us about the nature of God? Yes, Donna. But God is sovereign, God is sovereign God indeed. Everything there, that is in here. Right. He rules over all. He comes and he says, here peoples all of you. Just in case people didn't understand that first part, here, O earth, and all that is in it. He is the one who rules over all. Terry, did I see your hand? Yes, yes. I put it another way in my notes. I said God is eminent. He is not removed from his world. And this actually, as so I was thinking about the Constitution, many of the founding fathers of this country were deists who thought that God just set everything into motion and then removed himself and watched from afar as things unfolded. This tells us something completely different. This tells us that he sees and knows and is going to respond to what is going on. What else? Anything else? Yes, Pastor Dennis. He is immense. He is yes. awesome. Yes. To describe as um, treading upon the high places of the earth. Yeah. Think of the Himalayas <laughs> and all the different mountain ranges yeah. and he's this massive, mm-hmm. just stepping yeah. on like on the little petals. Yeah. Yeah. He is all-powerful. He is exalted above all things. He's transcendent. He is holy, set apart. As we think about that phrase in verse 4 of treading on the high places of the earth, we think first about the mountains. Think of, of high mountains. Think of the highest mountain that you can think of. And this verse is telling us that he treads upon them. He walks upon them. But high places could also have additional meanings as well. High places were seen as places of safety. They're seen as, as places where you would build cities. Jerusalem located on the top of a mountain. And so some might think that if they are in these high places, somehow they're safe from even God. But here we're being told that is not the case. And the high places were also locations for pagan worship. And we will see that further developed as we go through our study tonight. But as the people worship these false gods in these high places, what does God do to those high places? He tramples on them. He treads on them. I also have here that God is personal. He has emotions. He's taken offense at what he is witnessing in these kingdoms. It says, let the Lord God be a witness against you. He has the right to be offended at his creation, violating his holy law. Let's go to the second part of our question. What do the three imperatives in these verses, and there are three, what do they indicate to us is our appropriate response? First, let's talk about what are, those, what are the three imperatives that we see in these verses. We already talked about the one in verse 2, at the beginning of our, of our passage, which is here. There are two other imperatives in verses 2 through 4. Caleb? Pay attention. Pay attention. There's one more. Might not be as obvious, but for behold. The NIV renders that look. So we have here, pay attention, look. Three commands. These three imperatives tell us that God, because of who He is, the sovereign, holy, transcendent, eminent, personal, and all powerful One, is to be heard, is to be paid attention to, and beheld, looked upon when He speaks. While no, God no longer speaks through prophets, Hebrews 1.1 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. And just as then, still today, the proof of whether one has truly listened, truly understood, and truly beheld God's word is the appropriate response of Obedience. Consider how many times throughout Scripture we read that true listening, true hearing is seen in obedience, in living out the Word of God in our everyday lives. Exodus 15, verses 25 to 26 says this, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, And do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Read in Deuteronomy 13.4, You shall walk after the Lord your God, and fear him, and keep his commands, and obey his voice, and you shall serve him, and hold fast to him. Jesus in his earthly ministry says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And finally, in James 1, 22-25, we read, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And So we see that we must go much deeper if we are to truly hear, if we are to truly pay attention. And truly behold God's word. As God summons the people of the earth, the imagery used in the description of his coming may sound familiar. And this brings us to our next question. How does God's coming in verses 3 and 4 differ from other Old Testament events or scenes which describe God's coming? We see God's coming described in verses three and four, and it it sat, there's similar imagery to some other events that we read of, particularly in the Old Testament. But how does this coming differ from those other events or scenes, Caleb? What I thought of was
1: Psalm 46, okay,
0: um, where God is described as refuge in strength, okay, um, and very present help in trouble, okay. And many completely out of balance. Okay. Um, But in Micah passage, God is coming to judge Israel, but here um, God is um, promising to be a refuge. Right. Yes. And also in Psalm 18, verses 6 through 15, David describes similarly God's coming to help him. So we see the very same imagery used when God is coming to deliver his people. But in verses 3 and 4, what is God coming to do? He's coming to judge. He's coming to judge. At Mount Sinai, God was giving the law. We see a very similar scene. God, in that instance, is coming to give the law to his people. What do we see here? God is coming because people have broken his law. He's coming to enforce his law. And then in 1 Kings 8 10 and 11, the consecration of the temple, God comes down. It says that the ministers or the priests were unable to minister before him. His his glory was known in that place, and he was showing his people that he is with them. Now he is coming as what? As a witness against his people. And so symmetry may seem very similar, but it is far, far different in its purpose. Del Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this. Micah uses such graphic language to generate a proper fear of Yahweh. This is not the arrival of a denominational committee, but the advent of the Lord of all the earth. Our danger begins when we look at this text and say, well, now this is symbolic language. Maybe. Maybe. But if so, symbolic of what? Symbols point to realities. We think about marriage being a a symbol of Christ and the church. Biblical writer often uses symbolic or hyperbolic language because normal description is utterly inadequate for impressing the truth upon the readers and the hearers. Call verses 3 through 4 theophanic if it makes you feel better. But understand that by these verses, Micah doesn't want you to feel better, but to tremble. When we consider that the one who created the universe is personally taking time and stepping into time to deal with sin, it should cause us to tremble. so perhaps, as the first hearer of Micah's prophecy, living in either the northern or the southern kingdoms, might hear these words. They might hear the summons of all of the peoples of the earth. They might hear the summons of, of everyone on earth being called. They might say to themselves, well, of course God is summoning the people of the earth for judgment. Because the people of the earth are Gentiles. They're heathens without the word of God. They deserve God's judgment. We're the people of promise and God is always with us. While scripture doesn't record anyone saying these actual words, we can see evidence of this thinking all throughout the Old Testament as Israel in Deuteronomy 1 34 to 46 we're told when when they were told not to go up and fight after they had disobeyed the command of God to go in they presumptu- presumptuously went up to fight the Amor- Amorites and were defeated think about the scene in 1 Samuel 4 where they're facing the Philistines and this is during the time of the priesthood of Eli and what do the people do as they're about to go into battle even though they have apostatized Eli and his sons have taken them in a completely wrong direction they go and get the ark of the Lord and they bring the ark of the Lord in and there's a great shout because they believe that just having the ark of God with them will bring victory but what happens they suffer massive defeat and as we continue reading the words of verse 5 regarding the summons we are perhaps, and perhaps even the first hearers were shocked at what they heard. Verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem. Come to the question, but to save time, because I do want to spend more, some more time uh, further on. God's c- coming isn't just to judge those people, those heathens. First two words of verse 5 tell us why God is coming. All this, all of the summoning of the earth, all of the stark imagery that shows God coming in destructive power and authority, all of what we have just read, all of this is because of the transgression of Jacob. Some might say, okay, well, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at that time, the northern kingdom is feeling the threats of Assyria. And so perhaps Judah thought, well, we're safe. We have Jerusalem. They, They were worshiping falsely anyway. What do we read in the second line? And for the sins of the house of Israel. That's all of them. Northern and southern kingdom. And just to emphasize the point, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. God is saying through the prophet Micah, you all are guilty. You all are guilty. And as we look at these words that are used in these verses, we first see transgression, which actually means rebellion. All of this is for the rebellion of Jacob, the crossing of the line of God's law, the sins of the house of Israel, the continual missing of the mark of God's requirements spelled out in his law. Another rendering of that question, what is the transgression of Jacob, could also be, what is the cause of Jacob's sin? Is it not Samaria? Is it not that capital city where, where corrupt kings and kings who have not followed the way of the Lord have reigned? And what is the high place of Judah? Jerusalem was on a high place, but the high places, as we said before, were places of pagan worship. Is it not Jerusalem? So in this first part of the passage, Micah proclaims God's summons of all the people of the earth, his right as the creator and the sovereign one. We see here declared God's coming in power requiring the attention of all people and pronounces God's indictment or his formal charge for the sins of those who he has entered into covenant with cause their rebellion against his law and in the second part of the passage we see that God Promise what God promises will happen to those who have broken his law as we see God's righteous response. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley And uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. The word therefore, which begins verse 6, is the hinge between God's sovereign summons and God's righteous response. The reason for God's righteous response in verses 6 and 7, the reason for his doing all of the things that he says he's going to do, are the sins of rebellion and idolatry the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. And what was God's response to his people's sins? Promises that Samaria will be made a place of vineyards. This capital city, with its many buildings, will be flattened and will be a place where they plant vineyards. It says her stones will be poured into the valley stones that have been built up as protection against enemies. They'll be simply like water basically being thrown into the valley. The very foundations of the city will be laid bare. Samaria's idolatry would be utterly destroyed. Her carved images would be destroyed. Her wages received from Samaria's prostitution which in the old testament equates to idolatry her wages shall be burned with fire and in describing the last two lines of our passage verse 7 the expositor's bible commentary says the wealth that accrued to samaria from her idolatry would be taken away from her to be used again for the wages of prostitution, i.e., the invading Assyrians would transfer the wealth of Samaria to their own temples, where it would again be used for idolatrous worship. Notice here that the Lord says, I will make Samaria a heap. Then further down, I will pour down her stones into the valley. And then in verse 7, I will lay waste. Now history tells us that in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. And so historians would simply say, here is one conquering power taking over another country. They're coming in, and they're taking more land, and they can, we can simply look at it from a historical perspective. But from what we read here, who is doing it? God. God is the one. Directing history. God is the one who uses Assyria to bring judgment on the northern kingdom. And we shouldn't be surprised. God used Israel to bring judgment on the Canaanites, He uses human means to accomplish His purpose. And so, imagine hearing this. Imagine you're in the southern kingdom. You hear of Assyria coming in and destroying Samaria, having heard the words of Micah. And yes, you know that the Assyrian army did this, but it's Yahweh saying, I will make Samaria, a heap. I will pour down her stones into the valley. I will lay waste. So as we consider these last two verses, what do these verses indicate to us about God's view of Response to sins of his people, he Terry. He hates the sin and takes action. Yes, takes it seriously. Yes, all mankind is guilty before him. But in this instance, he stepped into history. He stepped into time. And he judged Israel. What else? Yes, Titus. He's just to punish sin. Yes, he's just. He does not show Partiality. What else? Caleb? These sins are abominations to him. Okay. He absolutely hates them. Yes. He hates them. Anyone else? The okay. Okay. And God is faithful to His Word. What was given in the law? Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And here we see God being faithful to His Word, bringing judgment. Upon his people. And so as we consider this passage, we come to our last question, and this is now to turn the light upon us. In what way should we be affected by what these verses indicate to us about God's view of and response to sins of his People. In what way should we be affected by what we have read? Yes, Steve. They're warnings. Okay. God is warning. Take heed. Mm-hmm. For I am God, and God alone. Mm-hmm. And God is in control. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yes, Don. Okay, yeah. And that is one point of application. And as I was thinking about this, I mean, we as the children of God, our fear is a reverent fear. But then I have listed there a verse from Hebrews. And what was the point of the book of Hebrews? It was to warn these Jewish believers about drifting from God. Hebrews ten twenty six 26-31 reads this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, from God if we are not staying steadfast in hearing understanding obeying his word we run the danger of apostasizing we run the danger of being found to have never been saved So if that is anyone here today, or if that is anyone listening, I would pray that this passage would be a warning. God indeed is not partial. He judges sin. What else? How else should we be affected? Yes, Robert. we see this as a warning and we've been given warnings in the new testament as well we should heed the new testament examples and warnings that are similar to micah's prophecy in their warning of judgment upon god's people for their sin think of ananias and sapphira suffered great judgment think of the warning in 1 corinthians 11:27 through 32 But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. And then 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We should receive God's word with its sharp edges and all. We should not shy away from passages like this. Yes, Micah's full of great promises and we'll get to them, but oftentimes people will skip all of this stuff (laughs) and go right to the good stuff. We can't do that. Nor... Can we, as those who seek to be declarers of the gospel, we can't shy away from declaring the sharp edges of God's word. Imagine you are Micah declaring this. Imagine the looks that you received. Imagine maybe even the scorn that you receive. What are you talking about? We're experiencing prosperity. We're fine. It, there's peace. There's, there's nothing to worry about. And yet, he kept true to God, his declaration of God's word. We should not be seekers of a new revelation from God, we should seek to heed and obey the revelation that he has already given to us. We don't need anything new from God. He has given us all that we need in his word. And as we contemplate what we have seen in this passage, as we contemplate God's summons, as we contemplate his coming, as we contemplate the reason for his coming, should make us all the more thankful for the gospel. All the more thankful for Christ. Because all of us, outside of Christ, stand guilty before God. We stand deserving of his judgment. But because Christ came and atoned for our sin, we can know that he received the judgment and the penalty for sin that we so rightly deserve. And yet, we should read this passage and we should tremble. <laughs> should tremble because we see how powerful our God is and we see this passage and we should be moved once again to declare the gospel to declare that there is a refuge from the wrath of God that there is a place to be shielded and covered from the wrath of God, which is to come. And so as we end our time, are there any final comments or questions about tonight's passage? Yes, Steve. And not only should we think about it in that way, but also we invite his discipline when we turn from him. We build an interruption between fellowship with him when we start to go after other other things. And our desire is to be that we would be seeking Him and following Him and being conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's what our our aim is to be, even as we heard this this past Sunday. Anyone else? All right, well, let us pray. Our God and Father, You are the creator of all things. You are all-powerful, And you have declared the beginning from the end. Your word is eternal. You are faithful to your word, which displays for us your character and your nature. And as we have read these words tonight, we pray that we would not simply close the book and forget what we read. Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to be mindful of our need to live out your word. Lord, and our need to declare your word to a lost world. Lord, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingly laying down your life for us. We thank you for your glorious resurrection, declaring that your sacrifice was accepted by the Father so that we today might know that we are children of the Most High. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who are drifting, any here who are considering going after other gods, going a different direction, straying from you, Lord, that you would use this passage to woo them back to yourself and warn them as well. And Lord, we pray that all the, that we have read would bear fruit in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.